and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. If you like Conservative Party leadership hustings, then this has been a glorious summer. If you don't, then the last few months have been akin to some sort of never-ending feverish nightmare. But wherever you stand, it's nearly over. On Monday, we will know whether Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss has won the race to succeed Boris Johnson. And on Tuesday, they will officially move into number 10 and begin the work of appointing their cabinet and trying to tackle an eye-wateringly difficult intrigue. Inflation is soaring, energy bills are rising, the union is straining, Brexit is not as done as some might claim, the conflict in Ukraine shows no sign of easing, and well, you get the idea. So, to look back on the summer and ahead to a very eventful week, I'm joined by a pair of IFG experts who live for the type of drama that Monday will bring. And that's <laughs> IFG senior fellow Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hi, Hannah. And programme director Alex Thomas. Hi, Alex. Hi, Hannah. And I am delighted to be joined by the FT's Whitehall correspondent and friend of the show, Seb Payne. Seb, great that you can join us. Hello. Now, you, I think I'm right in saying, chaired a hustings earlier this summer. Do you think the hustings process actually changed any minds in the Conservative Party? Not really. I think the whole contest has been pretty stable from the last BBC debate that happened at the end of July, because up until that point, Liz Truss had not been the best performer. She hadn't been the best debater and Rishi Sunak was far better and far smoother throughout the process. But then in that particular event, she really came punching through and Mr Sunak was criticised for being uh, sort of mansplaining, for talking over her. And from that moment on, the trajectory has been set. And I've watched, I think, nearly all of the hustings for my sins and chaired that one oh. in Exeter. And fundamentally, I could probably tell you all the lines they're going to use of each of the candidates because they have a script and they just stick to it. It hasn't really revealed that much. I think that the, the Rishi Sunak obviously had his bit of flip-flop on tax when he said no tax cuts and then announced a big tax cut in terms of cutting VAT on energy bills. Liz Truss has said various controversial things about the French president, uh, about ignoring Nicola Sturgeon. And watching all these hustings, it gave me the same um, perception I had after 2019 when I was watching Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Hunt. You'd leave the hall and think, oh, Jeremy Hunt, he did very well. He won that. And about an hour later, you couldn't name a single thing that he'd actually said, whereas you could remember the hilarious Boris Johnson soundbite. <laughs> it was exactly the same with Liz Truss, that Rishi Sunak, you, most people would leave and say, look, he's he's very smooth. He's a good debater. He's done well. And then you would say, Liz Truss, but she would say something maybe a little bit outrageous. And that stuck in the mind. And so do you think there's any chance, um, I mean, all the assumptions, all the write-ups at the moment, they seem to be assuming that Liz Truss will win. Do you think there's any chance Rishi Sunak will surprise us? Well, there's always a chance. And we've been through so many polling errors over the past couple of years that, of course, all the data could be wrong. All the bookmakers could be wrong. And it would be a fantastic upset if that happened. But I think every single bit of public data would suggest it's going to be Liz Truss. And in fact, the thing that tells me more than all the public data is the fact that Simon Case has been semi-permanently based at Chevening for the past week, preparing for Liz Truss to go into government. And he's obviously had conversations with Rishi Sunak as well. But I think if you're getting that much face time with the cabinet secretary then he probably knows what the rest of us do which is she's going to be the next prime minister very good point jill do you think now that we've seen this process play out it's likely to be the last uh, contest of this kind that the conservative party choose to run uh i think that they will have reservations about doing anything quite as long as this and i think there's some quite interesting comments being made on the radio by Henry Hill of Conservative Home 
about the structure of the contest. He thought that they should have given the MPs longer and then had a period of hustings where people could see both candidates in action and then allow members to vote over a much shorter time period rather than have this rather bizarre thing that a lot of people seem to have voted very early on. But we had this absolutely interminable set of hustings going around the country where I do think one of the interesting things was a bit of policy development from Liz Truss, not least on her energy package where she did seem to have to go on a bit of a journey away from tax cuts alone will hack it. I think the really interesting thing, though, is whether this provokes a debate in the party as opposed to in academia and on Twitter and among constitutional experts of the self-appointed sort um, about whether the membership should continue to have a role in uh, selecting the prime minister in this way, because quite a lot of people think that actually it's absolutely imperative that a prime minister commands the support of MPs. Paul Goodman of Conservative Home uh, wrote that he, one reason he was supporting Rishi Sunak is he thought the views of MPs should weigh quite heavily with Conservative Party members. After all, the MPs see their colleagues in action day after day rather than just dip in sporadically to the odd news broadcast. So I think it really is interesting whether that debate takes light. But I think it's really difficult to see a way in which having let the genie of membership voting, one member, one vote out of the bottle, that you put it back in again. But I'm not sure whether Seb thinks that's at all feasible and whether there are people, you know, among those conservative members who've turned up to those hustings events who are thinking, actually, we shouldn't be doing this. This should be the MP's choice. I think it's a it's a very good question, Jill. And I saw Lord William Hague has come out saying that the reforms he introduced in the late 1990s should actually be reversed and that it should just go back to MPs. uh, Politically, it's very difficult because to change the Conservative Party constitution requires a two thirds supermajority amongst all the parts of the of the of the party's constitutional college. Who knew it had a constitutional (laughs) college? But it has three elements, which is MPs peers and the national convention. Now, MPs, I imagine, would go for it, although they would get a lot of flack from their local associations. Peers, I mean, I'm sure they would go for it, you know, not being the most democratic element of this process. (laughs) But the national convention would not go for it at all, because you'd be saying to party members, please take away this very important role I have in the running of things. So getting that majority is going to be pretty impossible, I think. But there is this sort of sense that it's not quite right because members of parliament obviously do have their um, mandate from the people to choose their leader. And that feels more legitimate to me than having this process of 160 odd thousand members being able to choose the next PM. It's also, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with that, but it also seems quite unlikely that Liz Truss, if it is Liz Truss as the next leader, is the person to make that change. Partly because uh, she's implicitly saying, well, the process that elected me is not right or not legitimate in some way. She didn't come top in the MPs uh, ballot, though who knows what a final ballot might have uh, might, might have um, pr- produced. So it's certainly in the kind of short to medium term, if it is Liz Truss who uh, wins, that seems something that is unlikely to come on the table. I agree with that, because what kind of leader is going to come in and then try and change the process to put that leader yeah. in? The, re- the reason that William Hague did this in the late 1990s was because um, the Conservative Party membership was actually tanking at that point. And this theory sort of went around that if we allow people to have a role in the, me- in the leadership 
membership selection, then they'll want to come and join the party and get all involved. But, you know, I think that was, you know, a misguided thing. But now it's out of the bottle. Yeah. You don't think you'll put it back in. Bit of an analogy with electoral reform in uh, the House of Commons. Let's not go there. Let's not go there today. I don't think we've got time. Okay, let's move on to the choreography. Alex, can you just run through for us what's going to happen on Monday and Tuesday and what the key moments are that we need to look out for? Yes, and I think it'll be interesting to see what sort of leaks out over the weekend as well, um, you know, in anticipation of what's going to happen. So, yeah, sort of keep, keep an eye on sort of briefings, background uh, uh, background uh, bits of information uh, over the weekend. But then on Monday, we're expecting the uh, announcement of the Conservative Party leadership contest at 12.30. And it's really important in this context, it's for the nerds, but it is important to say that's the Conservative Party leadership. That's not um, uh, Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak becoming uh, Prime Minister, but that's the that's the announcement at 12.30. I think we can expect some form probably of a short statement uh, from the successful uh, candidate, you know, their uh, first uh, words to the nation, though I suspect they'll want to save the, 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 the big, um, the big ticket for uh, Tuesday. So then successful candidate, you'd expect them to be sort of closeted with their advisors over the course of the rest of Monday, making final preparations for forming the government, uh, putting the finishing touches to that um, speech from the steps of Downing Street. Uh, Then on um, Tuesday, uh, we would expect Boris Johnson to head up to Scotland, Balmoral, to uh, see the Queen, to uh, formally uh, hand in his resignation, as it were. And then at uh, some point uh, that uh, morning, uh, Johnson would uh, formally resign. He'd leave Balmoral uh, and then we'd expect the new leader of the Conservative Party, uh, Truss or Sunak, to head up to Scotland uh, and uh, then see the Queen. They'd have an audience with the Queen. They will be formally asked to uh, form a government uh, and then head back, we expect, to London. We don't know whether the the new prime minister then would say something uh, up in Scotland or will head as fast as they can back to Downing Street. Uh, They'll arrive in Downing Street. We'd expect a a speech in front of number 10. That'll be a really important agenda setting uh, moment. Uh, And then they will arrive, be clapped in by uh, the staff of number 10, as is traditional, greeted by Simon Case, the cabinet secretary. And then they will go into a whole series of meetings about forming their government, about national security questions. And there'll be a huge sort of frenzy of activity inside number 10. The main thing we'll see from the outside is the announcement of the big cabinet posts over the course of the rest of Tuesday. So Seb, which um, cabinet appointments will you be looking out for on on Tuesday and and through the rest of the week? Do you think there are likely to be any surprises or has everything basically been briefed out by now? extraordinary amounts have been briefed out by now. I can't think of any government we know in advance of saying we know pretty much who the Chancellor, the Home Secretary and the Foreign Secretary are going to be. The role that I'm going to be most interested in, and this is obviously my nerdy Whitehall hat here, is going to be the Cabinet Office Minister and CDL, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lanchester, because that role has become very important in recent years as the key fixer for driving through institutional reform, but obviously, of course, questions about the future of the union, um, things about obviously the tale of the coronavirus pandemic and all that sort of thing. And there's been a lot of names in the mix for that. So I think that role was actually offered to Lord David Frost at some point during the process. And of course, uh, Lord Frost was in the cabinet office under Boris Johnson. So you could see why that would make sense. But people in the trust camp say he turned it down because he very much is looking for a government ministry to run, which uh, we'll see if he does get anything um, come next week. The other person who is 
tipped up for that was Therese Coffey, who is a very close friend and ally of Liz Truss. But again, I think she wants a proper government department to get stuck into. So I'm going to be fascinated by who that is, because there's a lot of stuff coming down the tracks in terms of constitutional reform that the Trust government will have to deal with, particularly with Scottish independence. And that role will be important. In terms of other names, I think we've got a pretty good sense that there was this four-day, five-day period in the campaign, which was known as Operation Rolling Thunder. And this was Mark Fulbrook, who is likely to be the number 10 chief of staff, who set this out. And each day, a big name was announced to endorse trust. It was Tom Tuckenhat, Nadim Zahawi, Sajid Javid, uh, Penny Mordant. I think all those will probably get very prominent cabinet or close to cabinet roles. So that, it's going to be interesting to see how ideologically diverse this is, because obviously, in terms of the kind of tub-thumping people, you know who they're going to be, Suella Braverman in the Home Office, uh, Lord Frost in some kind of um, prominent role. But I think it will be interesting to see who is from the left of the party, because throughout all this, Liz, Liz Truss has said, her team have said, it's going to be all the talents in this government. And I think every single new prime minister and every single reshuffle I've ever seen as being a government of all the talents. And it's not. It's the government of the people who supported me and got me in this position. And Hannah, I think I think I've just seen a new constitutional convention emerging, which is Sebastian Payne, esteemed journalist, uh, uh, pre-announcing the cabinet uh, on the IFG uh, podcast. <laughs> I think that was a, no was a tour, place de, for tour de force, Seb. I was going to say, it's quite interesting that Seb has moved constitutional reform and managing the relations with the devolves back into the cabinet office. Of course, under Boris Johnson, it had migrated into this odd levelling up department. And I think one of the things to watch out for is whether the appallingly named D-Luck, Michael Gove's old apartment, stays with a big agenda and a big hitter in it, or does it revert to its sort of dull local government and at some point we'll get around to doing a bit of planning and a bit of housing department with very much a sort of second order minister or not and does the constitutional stuff and the relations that devolve does that go back into the cabinet office well jill i do take issue of saying that local government is quite dull but uh, uh, i've worked on local government for ages it's treated as very dull by yeah by government after government. It isn't It is true, but I think that's sort of part of the problem of government after government. And we ended up with the big regional inequalities and and poor functioning of local councils. So my feeling on that is the most obvious person for that role would be Simon Clark, the current Chief Secretary to the Treasury, because he is someone who represents one of those red war seats in the north of England, Middlesbrough South, which he won for the Tories, I think, for the first time ever in 2017. He's very close to Liz Truss and was a long marcher backing her leadership campaign, way before it had even started. But for my sense, I think he gets the levelling up agenda. He gets what needs to happen if the Tories want to hold on to some of the Red War seats. They won't hold on to all of them at all because I think a lot of them were personally connected to Boris Johnson. But I, I said that on purpose, Joe, because I do think it's mad to have the union within that department. It doesn't make sense at all. And it was there purely because of Michael Gove, the minister yeah. who was leading it. So putting that back into the cabinet office is a bit of brass plackery I think we'll get, particularly when we get the new cabinet secretary as well well yeah may come on to that i was, I was just gonna say i'm picking up on seb's point about the chancellor of the duchy of lancaster and, and the cabinet office i completely agree it makes sense for the constitution and the union to be sitting there i mean if if the new prime minister is struggling to persuade uh, someone to take that job um the addition of the uh, deputy prime minister title is always the sort of sweetener the that ball could ball. go with that or the de facto de- deputy prime minister as it was called the i mean one of the interesting things about that and it's obviously something it's a very ifg uh, uh, job it's probably one of the cabinet minister jobs that we track most 
um, closely is it, it used to be a real behind the scenes job. It was the main bit of the job was probably brokering, uh, and acting as a sort of number two to the prime minister in lots of cabinet committees and, uh, resolving tensions between, uh, departments with, you know, a little bit of civil service reform on the side and the odd other kind of, uh, uh thing that had collected around the cabinet office. Um, it's now turned into one of the really sort of core, more public facing, uh, departments and obviously government reform. We'll see, you know, we'll see how much, um, the new prime minister, uh, uh, prioritizes that or not. But I think that exactly as Seb said, the, the person who does that job will send quite an interesting signal about the internal running of this government as well as the, uh, the, the, the more public priorities. And Jill, you talked about uh, the possibility of uh, the remit of deal up changing. Do, we, do you think we're likely to be seeing any other uh, what we call in the trade machinery of government changes, changes to departments? I think that it would be very ill-advised now. And I think Liz Truss has probably been around the blocks enough. She's actually had, I was trying to work out, I think she's probably had more ministerial jobs than uh, almost all prime ministers coming in for as long as we can remember. Uh, so it's quite interesting that she's coming with this wide range uh, and been around the sort of, um, you know, this playing in the sort of lower half of the division of the cabinet, if you like, for quite some time in many of those jobs. So she has been around and done that. I think if she's got any sense, she'll think this is not the time for big machinery of government changes, even if when I'm re-elected in 2024, 2025, I might do a reconstruction. Now is not the time. I think the one interesting question, given its salience and importance, is does she feel that energy needs to be separately identified? Um, it's a quite semi-detached part of the business department at the moment. Remember, Theresa May abolished the Trump Department of Energy and Climate Change and merged it into the business department and hived a bit of that off. So does she maybe go for a cabinet level minister for energy, some sort of big hitter who can basically be the government spokesperson on energy, energy bills, long term energy security of supply? And where does net zero then sit? Uh, I think that's really quite an interesting set of questions, even if she stops short of creating what Rishi Sunak said he would do, a separate Department of Energy. Very interesting. And can I just go back to something you uh, said with a great degree of certainty, I felt back there, Seb, about a new cabinet secretary. Is that uh, is that something you think is going to happen? Well, as, as always, a lot of this is background chatter and briefing, but I think uh, Simon Case obviously found himself in some very tricky situations, not just due to the way he was appointed. You know, obviously very famously Dominic Cummings sat at the select committee and said, I appointed Simon Case. And the effect that had on Whitehall was very, very damaging to his standing there. Plus, of course, the fact he was deeply involved in the Partygate fiasco. And obviously he did not get fined by the Met Police, but I think that has definitely damaged his standing amongst other permanent secretaries and senior members um, of, of, of the civil service. My feeling would be is that the trust government is going to split into two distinct phases, and we've written about this at the FT. Phase one is going to be the first 100 days, which is just getting through the winter, so trying to tackle the cost of living situation. Phase two begins early 2023, where they want a year of delivery, of just focusing on, on getting stuff done, because that's going to be their best hope, trying to win the next election, of focusing on what was in the 2019 manifesto, but also various things Liz Truss has announced. My sense would be is that Simon Case will stay there until Christmas. But then early in the new year, that's when things could start to change. And there's been some um, um, some some reports that a former perm sec that Liz Truss worked with at Department of International Trade could go into that role. 
Obviously, I think there'll be a big push to get Tom Scholar from the Treasury into that role. But I somehow don't think Liz Truss, given that she attacks the Treasury every 15 yeah. seconds in her in her pitch and will be looking to put the Treasury's top Mandarin in charge of the civil service. But yes, I would say it's 80 to 90 percent certainty by this time next year, there will be a different cabinet yeah. secretary. I think it's it's. Um it is very interesting. I'm going to pick up on a few things Seb said there. I mean, firstly, I would suggest, not the experts on this, but the the, uh, the best way that a trust government could um, uh, secure its chances of re-election is to handle the winter really well. So it's sort of the mm. phase one and the sort of winter and beyond. And then there's the question of how long this crisis will actually last. But I think on the on the appointments, and particularly the civil service appointments, there is a there's a there's a tension between using your moments of maximum power, maximum leverage over appointments, which is early uh, and um, before the sort of space to manoeuvre has. Uh, has closed in versus having people who are already in there operating the system who know how to operate the system which i suppose chimes with that kind of first hundred days thing i'd only observe that um it is is interesting that sometimes sometimes with civil service uh, appointments and relationships uh, they kind of degrade and get more and more toxic between ministers and very senior um civil servants other times civil servants sort of uh, manage to make themselves indispensable um to uh ministers there's certainly you know more than a few occasions i've seen where the assumption was that uh, uh, that a relationship wouldn't work, but actually the civil service, the civil servant did the civil service thing and made themselves useful to their principle. Um, so interesting if if uh, if what Seb says there does play out. And we've already started to get into this, but in terms of the new uh, prime minister's intray, um, I guess Seb, I mean, it's essentially it is all about energy. Um, we, do we expect some sort of support package at least announced next week? Well, there's going to be what's quote, a quote unquote emergency budget. And we've put up putting that in quote marks at the FT because it's not going to be a full budget, but it sounds like a budget um, for people who are worried, obviously, about what's coming down the tracks. I'm not sure it'll be next week because obviously they, the new prime minister and chancellor need to get in, look at the internal figures, go through what the Treasury has worked up over the summer, but also chime that with their own plans. I'm sure there's been preparations that between uh, the permanent side of the Treasury and Kwasi Kwarteng, who has said is all but nailed on to be the next chancellor, and that would have been communicated to the transition team for the new government. The last that I've heard is this emergency budget slash special fiscal events, to give it a maybe more formal title, will be around September the 21st. So before party conference season, but enough time to have something that's stress tested, can, the pitch could be rolled out and make sure it's done properly. Because just coming in and banging out an announcement within the first couple of days risks backfiring. And also, Listress is going to have to pretty much U-turn from a lot of what she said in the leadership contest on this. So they've got to have to roll the pitch for that because she's talked about no handouts. I imagine this package will have quite a lot of handouts in it. Define define handout, indeed. So, I mean, and in terms of this fiscal event, whatever it actually is, I mean, we've we've written that it's more important what it contains, really, than what it's called. Exactly. We've had a bit of um, pushback from the Trust campaign, haven't we, about the need to use official forecasts from the ABR to commission those before doing something like this. What, What do you make of that, Jill? Well, I think that works on sort of two levels. One of which is, as I think Gemma's written, if it's a a bunch of temporary help that doesn't affect the long-term public finances, then you can go ahead and announce that and it's sort of time limited. If you're doing things which have long-run impacts on the public finances, so you're dramatically changing the long-term structure of taxation, then you probably should, for the sake of retaining confidence in your economic management, accompany that with an official forecast. The Office for Budget Responsibility has 
taken away the excuse that the that Liz Truss uh, might use that they can't do a forecast in the time by saying yes we're gearing ourselves up to do it we can do it uh, so they won't have that excuse that the OBR isn't ready and they have to proceed without that but whatever happens you know under the industry act we will get a new official forecast of the public finances either at this September uh, in inverted commas emergency budget fiscal event or whatever we end up calling it, or when we have the full-scale budget because the Industry Act obliges the OBR to produce two forecasts a year. So we will see where we are ending up and what the prospect now looks like for the public finances. One of the very interesting things, I think, was the early stage of the leadership debate were framed by the idea there was quite a lot of headroom to play with, uh, that it was a question of how you use that headroom. But I think the rapid deterioration in the country's economic prospects suggests that the underlying fiscal position may have worsened quite significantly. So that's what we really need to know where that is all ending up long term. And Seb, I mean, you've written a lot about levelling up. What does this current fiscal position we find ourselves in, whether under Truss or under under Sunak, what, what does that mean for levelling up, do you think? Well, there is this fundamental problem across all government spending that soaring inflation is going to hit all the capital investment. And that's going to be a big problem. Whoever becomes prime ministers, they either got to cut back on their capital investment or find some more money from somewhere else. And that's obviously been a consistent question for Liz Truss, that she's promised all this spending, but can't exactly say where it's going to come from. Um, if it's Rishi Sunak, he will keep the agenda as it was under Boris Johnson. And I think if he did win, then I think Michael Gove would return to that department. Um, but that feels very unlikely, given that Mr. Gove has written a farewell to frontline politics, anticipating what is coming down the tracks. Uh, if it's Liz Truss, I think she said she wants to do levelling up in a more, quote, conservative way. There's talked about cutting regulation, uh, actually, in some ways, a more Heseltinian approach. If you look back to the enterprise zones of the 1980s and early 1990s, that's the kind of space that she's talking about there. Um, but I, I think the fundamental problem is going to be there's just not going to be much money. And by the fact, Liz Truss has already promised to keep going ahead with HS2, plus do Northern Powerhouse Rail. That was a big part of the fact Jake Berry endorsed her, um, the chair of the Northern Research Group of MPs. I'm not quite sure, again, where, how all these sums are going to add up here. And I imagine that there's going to have to be some kind of spending round at some point to deal with this situation. And of course, there may not be OBR forecasts for this special fiscal event in September, but there will have to be before the end of the year. And there's going to be some very different difficult questions. Personally, I think that sort of does, it would be a big mistake for whoever becomes prime minister if they jettison the levelling up agenda, because as well as I think it's quite morally the right thing to do for the country to make us a more equal country and better share the proceeds of growth. All the people who voted for Brexit in 2016 and voted Conservative in 2019 did so because they wanted change in their lives. And if they're not going to get that change, then I think they'll be very disappointed and also risks a big political backlash as well. One of the real difficulties, I think, for Liz Truss, she said she wants to do a spending round, but she's going to see that that spending round doesn't add up with lots and lots of easy options to cut spending and redirect it. It's going to end up with a huge number of bids just and, to keep services and all, level. And the real and challenge, with, I think, um, over the next all, all, few... 
Sorry, Sorry Giles, I know, I know with no new taxes, which is what she said this week, which I, I mean, not surprising in one sense, madness. but ext- extraordinary sort of hostage to fortune potentially. Exactly. And Liz Truss said no new taxes. Uh, she's ruled out as well a win for tax. There were some leaked Treasury documents to Bloomberg this week that projected some of the energy companies are going to make £170 billion in profits this year. I mean, you look at that and you imagine how your average punter will see that when they see their energy bills going up by 80%. And I thought it was unbelievable she ruled out a further win for tax. And I understand economically where she's coming from, but it's really bizarre to box yourself in when you look at what's coming down the line. And also when it looks like, you know, she's she's doing pretty well in the in the campaign. So some of these last minute uh, commitments look, you know, but what we have seen, Hannah, and what we saw during the campaign was when she issued that press release with numbers that were clearly absurd and implied regional pay cuts, lots of frontline public service workers. She said she'd been misinterpreted. So we may find that there were more areas where we misinterpreted what Liz Truss said during the election campaign. And in, in relation to, to questions of, uh, of misinterpretation and, and whether people um, uh, tell the truth or not and so on, we've also heard uh, Liz Truss suggest if she became prime minister, she, she doesn't think there's a need for an independent advisor on ethics um, I think Rishi Sunak has said he would uh, reappoint someone to that role, which is obviously currently vacant. Um, Alex, is there a sort of a bit of a theme emerging here? No, no advisor on standards, no need for the ABR. Do, are independent experts going out of fashion again? Yeah, I think it is. It is interesting. There's, um, uh, I mean, on the ethics advisor, I think there's a kind of. Uh, uh, Liz Truss has seemingly adopted the um, position that Boris Johnson did in that sort of forward to the ministerial code that sort of very much equated, you know, his uh, mandate and his judgment about what was ethical or not in government, you know, with, uh, you know, with what was appropriate. And so I think Liz Truss is saying it's for me to make these judgments. Um, I mean, on the on ethical standards, but also more generally, I think there's a uh, there's obviously a sort of you know slightly philosophical, maybe sometimes slightly pompous uh, position that it's you know good to have these things and it's important that we have these uh, people who are uh, able to judge what's right or not. But there's also just a self interested reason. The reason we've had an ethical advisor is as much because it's in the interests of the prime minister to have an ethical advisor as it is. Um, uh, because uh, there's some sort of moral uh, purpose to it. it. It suits a prime minister to say, I'm going to hand over an assessment of my ministerial colleagues' content to this other person, and then they will reach a judgment and I will have to reach a conclusion on that. It's a way of managing some of these things and a way of managing their ministerial team. So there's a sort of utility point to it as well. I also think that you know, the value of these OBR or um, advisors or something is they set they help tease out the sorts of issues. Decisions need to sit with ministers. It's wrong to suggest we should have some sort of, you know, bureaucratic uh, superstate or a, a bureaucratic constraint on what uh, ministers should do. But it is, um, you know, it is useful for these uh, sort of oversight organisations or semi-independent organisations um, to help tease out the sort of parameters within which, you know, reality exists and in which ministers are going to make those decisions and should hopefully lead to, to better de- decisions across across the piece. I think I think there is another point, Hannah, which is about re- sort of retaining confidence. We've seen a month in which Sterling has taken a battering. If you suggest that you're actually going to pay much less attention to your independent overseer of the public finances, if you suggest that you're going to look again at the relationship 
with the independent Bank of England, something Liz Truss has suggested looking again at the mandate. That's not necessarily a dumb thing to do. But if it suggests she wants to repoliticize interest rate decisions, we've seen some stuff about the way in which the UK approaches financial services regulation with the potential to call in more decisions and have ministers override the regulator. I think one of the things she does need to be careful about is in an environment where the economy is pretty precarious anyway and teetering or in recession, uh, you don't want to do things that actually spook the markets even more than they appear spooked already. What she should be making as a priority is to actually be reassuring people. She's got a clear, sensible and coherent vision of the economy, a plan that adds up that she can deliver in a competent cabinet in charge and that she's actually going to bolster institutions and make them work better where they're not working so well rather than substitute political judgment for independent judgment where it's been introduced to create more space actually for politicians to act by taking some things out of that political realm. And let's end with a final word on Boris Johnson, whose premiership ends this week after three years, one month and 14 days in power. Sarah, a plug for you. You're writing a new book about this, but are you going to be able to cover this, the final episode, the Privileges Committee? Because we've just had an interesting uh, intervention on that, on, on one of Boris's last days in power. We've had curious thing of uh, legal advice released by the government uh, on on the inquiry that the Privileges Committee is conducting into whether he lied to the House of Commons. Well, thank you very much for the plug, Hannah, and I will take full opportunity this by saying that the fall of Boris Johnson, the full story, will be out in bookshops later this year. And the book, unfortunately, has just been filed. So it is going to miss privileges before, and that will all happen before it comes out, or depending on how long it goes on for. Um, The privileges thing is fascinating because if you go back to that period when the investigation started after the Prime Minister was fined along with his wife, Carrie, and the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, uh, the government wanted to delay the vote on privileges until after the full Sue Gray. And it was another example, um, as I write about in the book, of the massive disconnect between Downing Street and the party whips operation and the fact this relationship had been entirely broken down. So Chris Eaton Harris, who's the chief whip, came up with this ruse to do an amendment to delay the vote. That uh, ruse failed when it realised he just didn't have the numbers among MPs. So at that point, they gave way, they accepted the Privileges Committee investigation, and here we are. It's now going ahead, and Boris Johnson is desperate to to avoid this because he obviously wants to stay an MP, wants to be in Parliament and wants to protect his name. The advice from Lord Panic, I've only rifled through it before I was starting this podcast. Uh, and it does, you know, it is a strong legal opinion from a very serious lawyer there. Whether that's going to affect what Parliament does or not, I don't really know. But I do think the attacks are by the allies of Boris Johnson on privileges is a very damaging thing. And I spoke to one senior Tory MP for the book who described it to me as burning the house down as they try to escape it, which I think is uh, quite a good analogy for where this leaves us. So I do hope the Privileges Committee does not get does not get besmirched in all this because it would just be very damaging for Parliament. And Alex, the, the, I mean, quite apart from what Lord Plank has, has said in his advice, it seems uh, immediately struck me as odd that this advice had been commissioned by government at all. It is quite weird, um, and not least because it's about Boris Johnson's sort of personal behaviour. I mean, before while this was being briefed out, and um, uh, and before we actually saw the advice, I was must admit I was expecting it to be more framed around you know the 
constraints that an investigation like this might impose on government. Um, but it is actually, it's very personally focused on Boris Johnson. And it's also very much written as an advice to, you know, make the best case for uh, uh, Boris Johnson's treatment by the Privileges Committee being unfair, if you like. It's not, it doesn't read to me like a kind of on the one hand, on the other hand, these are the different considerations. This is a, this is a piece of legal advice, which le- lawyers often write to, you know, make the argument for their client. I mean, one final little thing I saw commentators on, on Twitter again, just before we came in, you know, noticed that at the very end of this piece of, uh, uh, uh legal advice, um, uh, it's, it's commissioned, you know, by a solicitor. It's not from the government legal department. Um, so I think there is a very interesting question if someone wants to uh, put in some freedom of information requests or parliamentary questions about who paid for this advice. I think, uh, Hannah, that'd be a very interesting question for the, uh, public administration committee to ask Simon Case when he next gives evidence whether this was really, really appropriate. I remember way back in the dim and distant past, when Norman Lamont was Chancellor and had a problem with a vexatious tenant in his uh, in the house that he wasn't living in, that he was letting out while he was living in number 11 Downing Street, who happened to be using it as a base to uh, run her sex therapy business. And this got all into the papers and was very distracting for the Chancellor. That I think the Treasury did contribute towards the payment uh, of legal advice to help the then chancellor evict his tenant. And that was justified by the then permanent secretary that it was too distracting and the chancellor wasn't focusing on the job and therefore it was in the public interest to pay for this. But of course, Boris Johnson's about to be an ex-prime minister, so you can't really even run that excuse. So I think it'd be really interesting to see how the cabinet office justifies doing this. And just from my point of view, I mean, I think uh, having, again, very quickly looked at the advice, it seems to me um, that the, the argument that's being made is very much about what a, a sort of a legal contempt would be and what the Privileges Committee is doing is running a parliamentary process, not, not a legal process. And I think if you look back to both to uh, the Owen Patterson case and, and now this, there does seem to be this increasing push um, from, well, under the under the um, Johnson government to, to try to apply legal standards to what goes on in Parliament in a way which, Firstly, is is inappropriate because parliamentary processes are for Parliament to decide. But secondly, you know, actually, at the end of the day, you know, is it where the government really wants to end up? That actually, when something uh, is is questioned in Parliament, we, we're going to a process which is lawyered up, which is about you know people uh, appearing with with counsel and with applying legal um, you know standards and processes to everything. I think they might find that's quite a dangerous uh, direction to end up going in and, and risks a confusion between uh, Parliament and the courts. But one of the big characteristics of the Boris Johnson government, and hopefully won't be of the Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak government, is that it's always seemed to resort to what's expedient and will get it through the next day, the immediate problem, the next few hours, rather than actually thinking through, well, if we did that, it might be helpful in the short run, but what will the long-term implications be? And I think we have to hope that one of the things the new prime minister does differently is actually manage to address short-term problems. They've got huge numbers of them coming straight at them, but also give a thought to what happens on day two, week two, month two, and maybe even beyond the next election. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Alex Thomas, Jill Rutter, and of course to Seb Payne. Good luck with the book, Seb. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And to borrow the words of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, 
please leave us a positive review. And don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We've got a new paper out by Giles Wilkes, a former number 10 advisor on what the next PM needs to do to support business, as well as one by Kath Haddon on how new ministers can get to grips with their departmental budgets. There's also a brand new graph-filled review of Boris Johnson's time in office, something for everyone. And next week, we'll be running an analysis-packed live blog. There's our expert briefing event on the new PM's in-tray on Tuesday, and we'll have plenty to say about the new Prime Minister and their first days in office. Until then, enjoy the weekend, everyone. Next week could be a little lively. Mm-hmm.